Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Poxon and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 34, we take a somewhat unexpected right-hand turn in the film score genre with a look at the history of movie studio themes. Yes, that's right, the music that plays before our favourite movie begins. And would you believe this is part one of two? Leave it to Art of the Score to turn an episode about music that lasts 10 seconds and turn it into a two-parter. And what viewing of Star Wars would be complete without the Fox fanfare? Or... How could we watch Beauty and the Beast for the hundredth time without first seeing that magical castle and the classic When You Wish Upon a Star to accompany it? It turns out that the studio themes are as baked into our psyche as the film and score themselves. And with composers like Alfred Newman, Max Steiner, through to Jerry Goldsmith, Lalo Schifrin, James Horner, and of course, Johnny Williams, we've got to shoehorn him in there somehow. It's no wonder these iconic and snappy themes are so dear to our hearts. And joining me on this triumphant fanfare of an episode is composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor, and... Also, the resident composer of the historic Art of the Score fanfare, it's Nicholas Buck. How are you doing, Nick? Ta-da! We're back. God, it's been a while and I am very excited for this. Something a little more unusual for Art of the Score. Um, And I think we are going to really dissect the history of film music along the way. Um, Because it's going to take us basically 100 years to get through this. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be essentially 100 years. And adding his all-important body to this trio, and, and Nick, I don't just like him for his body. He's a critic, a university lecturer, writer, ABC radio host, and Art of the Score's roaring lion's head. Did you get that, Nick? Because he's hairy. And it's the MGM thing. Anyway, it's a joke. It's Dan Golding. How you doing, Dan? <laughs> I'm doing very well. Uh, I'm really, really looking forward to this one. It is. It's an unusual episode, and perhaps a slight, slight change for the format uh, to some degree. But I think it's going to tell us so much about film music history, but film history as well. Um, yeah, so you know, it's 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 one that I've been so looking forward to recording. So I, it's yeah, it's going to be great. I mean, this is this is what I, I like about this this idea, and and to actually pay you your dues right off the at the top of the episode, uh, Dan. This is something that you suggested, <laughs> and I was a little bit surprised. But as is with many things, where we look at sort of multiple decades, you actually discover the uh, the styles of the time and the how the mm. the industry is changing and how that is borne out through uh, the movies of various periods but in this case how the studios are thinking about advertising and how they're thinking about a musical identity and you know how audiences are having that sort of interaction with with the studio themes as well so this is a very unexpected but one <laughs> unexpected episode but one that I'm very much looking forward to yeah, and I, I think, you know, once you start delving deeper into this stuff as well, it, it sort of almost mirrors that process when you start getting into film music for the first time. You go, oh, that composer, that that, that soundtrack that I really like, that was written by that guy and, and, and that person also wrote this other film that I really like. It's sort of the same process and you're like, I had no idea that 
this, um, you know, bit of opening credits music that I've heard a thousand times and know like the back of my hand, but I've never thought about who wrote that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's there's just so many hidden gems to be found, I think. And, and here's a little anecdote. Whenever the, the orchestra plays these uh, movie shows, and if you haven't seen them, um, it's the, the shows where a live orchestra in the theatre um, with live audience uh, get a version of the film where the soundtrack has been removed. The orchestra then play the soundtrack in sync to the film, and it's an amazing time. What happens almost every time is there are oohs and ahs and cheers and laughing, I guess, in, in, a, in a good way, when often these films are prepared where the orchestra plays the studio logo theme as well. And, you know, no more classic, of course, than the, you know, 20th century Fox fanfare before Star Wars, of course. As soon as that comes on, everyone just goes, wah, because I never expected, you know, that that's what they're going to get. Um, And there are so many examples of this. And, you know, it's only at that moment that you discover that these themes are as iconic to our nostalgia or our childhoods or, you know, various decades. You know, that experience of going to the movies you know, these themes are so important. Um, you know, mm. they're just absolutely baked into my, my mind and I almost can't watch certain films without hearing that, <laughs> that logo theme beforehand. Sort of the sound of the curtain going up, I think, you know, is, is, is a lot of the time um, what's happening here and, you know, obviously we'll unpick that a lot through the course of, of these episodes. But, yeah, it's, it's getting ready. It's saying, hey, you, you're about to see something. You're about to hear something. Um, it's going to be great. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about the origins of, like, the fanfare. And, I mean, I don't know exactly when the first fanfare ever was written, but, you know, Shakespeare would reference them in his script directions. So we're talking 1500s at least. Mm. And I'm sure it goes back to, you know, kings and queens having fanfares written for them as like an identity or a sort of heraldry celebration thing. But what you mentioned, Dan, about sort of a getting ready, uh, ta-da, wake mm. up, you know, pay attention, you've paid good money put your popcorn down and really get ready for the for the night's entertainment. And it goes back as far as, you know, classical music having overtures, operas and that kind of thing. Monteverdi, like his like almost the first known opera was called Orfeo. That had a really kind of brass fanfare and we're talking, you know, 1610 here. <laughs> Mm. Uh, which again would just be to to get the punters ready who back in the day would be kind of just rambling like a mob and almost rioting in in the audience Uh, and then ta-da oh okay we better button ourselves up and get ready and Mm. I think it's only really in the last hundred years that it's been used as more a marketing ploy and I think that's a really interesting thing because it's 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 not just a get ready it's also a real branding a sonic branding for these studios Absolutely. Now, before we we get into the meat of this, we're coming on to tax time here in (laughs) Australia. I don't know if our international listeners have taxes at at different times of the year, but in the middle of the year is tax time in Australia. And Dan, did you know that when I've been going through the finances of Art of the Score, guess how much we spend on marketing? (laughs) Uh, Look, I don't know, but it's got at least one zero in it. (laughs) It's got a zero in it followed by another zero. We spend no money on marketing. So we rely on our wonderful listeners. We rely on the old-fashioned word of mouth. Mm. It's uh, free, it's reliable, uh, but it does require people we don't know 
to work for us. So uh, <laughs> if you enjoy Art of the Score, if this is the sort of episode uh, that really gets you hot under the collar as it does Daniel and Nick, please uh, feel free to subscribe to this podcast on whatever podcast uh, platform you happen to find us on. Uh, leave us a rating and a review. We love reading the reviews. Of course, there is only one type of rating, Dan, and what is that rating? I think it's five stars. Five stars. Yeah. Five stars. Yeah. If it's not five stars, you know, keep it to yourself <laughs> is what I'm saying. Keep it to yourself. I mean, like, it, your points, your ideas are valid. Maybe you can tweet angrily at us, mm. but keep it to yourself when it comes to rating the podcast. <laughs> so, Daniel, mm-hmm. I'm going to need you to kick off this juggernaut of an episode. We're only part one, okay? So, yeah. prepare yourself, <laughs> do your stretches because this is a marathon. Yeah. Yeah, um, but where ready. are we going to begin when we talk about the studio logo music? Well, you have to begin with the studios themselves, really, as they transition into the sound era, because that's, of course, when we start to hear the first recorded uh, studio logo fanfares. Now, by the time that occurs in sort of 27, 28, 29, that's the transition to, to sound in Hollywood, the studio system already exists. And so what you have is actually something called the big five, the little three, and assorted others, uh, which uh, perhaps I'll get to. But the big five, they're the ones who make all the money. They're the ones who control uh, the big back lots. They've got a lot of stars signed to them. They've got directors signed to them. And they all make sort of various types of films um, that are kind of associated with them as brands. So, you know, I, I think the first thing that we have to imagine is that this is an era without DVDs or streaming or VHS or even laser discs, that the only way you're going to see a movie is by seeing it in the theatre. And so it's a lot more like a kind of an event. Uh, it's very much in the moment. And so the studios kind of get associated with various, I don't know, taste, I suppose. And they also, you know, start setting up their own uh, theatres and stuff like that. They buy up theatres. And so there's this era in really sort of, you know, the 20s and 30s in particular with sound to the 50s or thereabouts, which is called the golden age of Hollywood. And that's when these studios have enormous amounts of power. And that's when you start to get to see them starting to brand themselves and kind of almost to some degree being, I wouldn't quite say authors, but close to that. That's kind of what's happening with these logos at the start of these films. You are seeing a Fox film and it's got certain types of things you might expect or you are seeing a universal film and it's got certain types of things you might expect. And so really that's kind of what happens. Now these, you know, studios had logos in the silent era. Of course, the first thing that I started to look into when we were researching this episode, and I should say a lot of, <laughs> a lot of research has gone into this episode, perhaps more so than usual because there's no, that I could find anyway, there's no like repository of film logo history in a single book or a single journal article or anything like that. Um, I asked around, I asked, I think maybe we can call him a friend of the podcast now, Frank Lehman, our friend Frank, um, who does the amazing catalogue of Star Wars leitmotifs. I asked him if there was some very obvious academic publication on this that I was missing and he, he agreed there wasn't really anything. So a lot of the information we'll be talking about today is kind of pieced together from a whole bunch of different sources and, and, and research. So uh, where did I come from from that? Um, yes, so the first question that I that I wanted to ask about this is what was the first fanfare? 
Uh, and were there any in the silent era? I don't know <laughs> is the answer to that. I don't think so. But uh, as far as I can tell, this is really something that kicked off with the sound era. So we're talking late 20s, really, when we start to get the first fanfares and first sounds for studios. And Nick, the first of these aren't really music, are they? They're not. And in fact, the first fanfare that I can really think of is for a silent film uh, called White Shadows in the South Seas. And it's actually the, the MGM Lion Roar. Now, it's not the first MGM Lion. I think the MGM Lion first originated in 1916. And you know, there's been like, it's been like eight lions or something ridiculous over the years. Like Slats was the name of the very first lion. But the first one that roared was called Jackie. And she sounded like this. And that's it. It kind of sounds like she's yawning. It's like, yeah. oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I guess you can come along and watch this film. I mean, God, how underwhelming is that? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so you said that was for a silent film. So how was that actually played? So it was played on a gramophone at the front of the theatre, huh. like separately. Like here's a little... Yeah. And then the rest of the film was silent. Wow. Um, so there you go. I mean, That's it might have had like an organ player live scoring it, you know, or something mm. like that. Um, but yeah, that that was that was good old Jackie, 1928. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, and, you know, to think... Even today, I mean, that's basically unchanged. You, when you see an MGM film, you see you see a lion, um, <laughs> and and that's kind of you know I think so many people associate that with 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 movie going and movie watching. I mean, I think there are a few different lions. I don't know if you've you've got any others, but but just for the profile of the studio, I thought I'd mention um, with each of these as we go through at least at the beginning. So I mentioned that the studios, the big the big five, all had identities. So MGM uh, was established in 1924, that's Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and they were known for their big stars. A lot of the studios had a roster of stars, but MGM was the glamour, sophistication, central star, you know, sort of um, uh, film studio. Does this mean that the... uh stars would sign up exclusively to that studio. Yep. So if you yep. you were into a certain star, you could only see them on the MGM pitches. That's right. Yep, that's right. So I mean, that doesn't and, really happen now, does it? Uh not definitely not to the same degree. Um no. And what you would also have is not just stars but other creative personnel. Um so directors, producers, screenwriters um would work for a studio for fixed contract years or or, or sometimes ongoing contract years and just sort of be assigned to whatever projects came up, even composers as well. You know, I mean, this is why in the early years of the Academy Awards, I think we've talked about this on previous episodes, the first Academy Awards for Best Original Score would go to the head of the music department rather than the composer because that was just how it worked. You know, it wasn't about the individual. It wasn't even about the individual director back then. Like the director was kind of like seen as a a creative person but not necessarily the author in the same way as we see them even today so it was the studio to some degree yeah now we also get uh in 1929 rko rko radio pictures get a kind of slightly more musical fanfare but still not quite and it's a very famous morse code little ticker tape thingy that sounds like this 
<laughs> did we did did either of you bother working out what this is, or do we know what the the Morse code is? Oh, Nick knows. He knows. Uh, I do know. It it says attention, attention, an RKO radio picture. Wow. End, end, end. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, that's sort of the translation of that. Yeah, so it's great. nothing like. Imagine if it was, it was like some. Some like crazy code that like helps yeah. solve the Enigma machine, or something. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever well, it is. You I, know. I think you, you would just be able to not be able to get away with it back then. Maybe today you could, but back then Morse code understanding would be well, not relatively widespread, but you would certainly cause problems, I reckon, if you put weird messages in yeah. there. Um, but yeah, RKO is 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 one of the few. Actually, it's pretty much the only one from this era the, of the majors, certainly that doesn't really exist um, in the same way today. Um, so it was uh, created through a merger of the Radio Corporation of America with the Keith and Orpheum Theatres. So this is all, one of the early, um, I mentioned before, one of the early examples of a film studio also owning the theatres where the films were shown. So this was one of the big things that was different about the golden age of Hollywood that is to today uh, is that the big studios owned a lot of theatres as well. So, you, you know, you, you'd go and see an MGM movie at the MGM theatre. Um, uh, okay. And so, so you could only see MGM films at that theatre. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, it was, I mean, there was a huge court case about this. I'm sort of getting ahead of myself, I suppose. But there was there was the United States versus Paramount Pictures um, uh, antitrust lawsuit where they argued that it was basically an oligarchy, and it was. Um, but RKO is, is really one of the first to, to do this. And they... I guess their trademark as a studio was big directors with kind of creative independence. So this was, if MGM was the actor's studio, then RKO is kind of the director's studio. Um, out of RKO, you get like Citizen Kane, King Kong, um, Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. Later, they move into sort of crime and noir. Um, and eventually, in I think the 50s, they were bought and really kind of managed into the ground by Howard Hughes, <laughs> the, the aviator slash director oh, yes, yes. guy. Um, yeah, so interesting, yeah. interesting history. But they were a huge player um, for, I don't know, a good 20, yeah. 30 years. Here's yeah. a thought, Dan. Uh, mm. Are we seeing a version of this type of filmmaking mm. with the streaming services now? Netflix well, has its style in a way, and you can only see those on Netflix and they have yep. its own thing going on, Disney Plus, mm -hmm. you know, Amazon Prime, et cetera, et cetera. They're now studio, weirdly studios within themselves that are making things and it has its own style. I mean, mm. we're sort of, and then you've, I, it's not happening in Australia, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm hearing the odd word about, you know, Netflix buying up theatres and mm. um, having Netflix theatres that you can go and watch things in. And I, whether that has happened or not, I don't know. Probably our US friends are yelling at me because it's either <laughs> totally not happening or it totally is. It's one or the other. Um, but yeah, it's, it feels like there's a, an echo um, of those original years. Well, to answer this, yeah, I mean, the answer is yes, you're absolutely right. You're so right that I'm kind of almost spoiling the end of our narrative uh, from start <laughs> to finish Be because, because, and look, it's, it's actually good because it, it's a bit of a prelude and we'll discuss this a little bit. We'll discuss all of this, I'm sure, as we go along. But um, one of the most unremarked actions of the Trump presidency right near the end was to overturn that antitrust ruling. So from 1948 that said that studios couldn't own theatres and couldn't act in these really anti-competitive ways. It was, yeah, like I think in like, I don't know, 20, 
20 or something like that, just right towards the end, that ruling no longer exists. So if Netflix wants to make movies, buy theatres and distribute them only at Netflix theatres, which I guess practically speaking they do already through the streaming platform, uh, then that's now legal again. So we've got the two non-musical ones. Then there's, well, if we're going to get to another of the majors, we've got Paramount Pictures. Now Paramount did comedy, they did light entertainment, sometimes epics, um, but really they, they were one of the biggest ones. They were the biggest studio uh, in Hollywood for a very long time, which is why the United States government targeted Paramount specifically in that court case. They, I'm sure you will recognise the Paramount mountain. In terms of music though, I mean, Nick, help me out. Um, what, what do we got? Look, it wasn't really that well-defined. I mean, in all my research, and you've done a lot of research as well, I keep hearing talk about this piece of music called Paramount on Parade, written by Elsie Janis and Jack King. And it was kind of used as a almost like a sort of Broadway review song kind of thing, which apparently was used on a whole heap of different Paramount films. But I can't seem to find any definitive sort of version of it, which is really identifiable and iconic. So it sort of has just been lost to the annals of time, uh, which is a bit of a shame. I mean, maybe there are some purists out there who who know this piece, but it really hasn't, yeah, hasn't really lasted through to through to the modern day era. But when we go over to some place like 20th Century Fox, all of a sudden we're talking the polar opposite. You know, here is a studio logo identity, a musical identity that is so strong that it's possibly the most famous fanfare ever written. It'd be really hard pressed to, to find anyone who's ever seen a film in their life to not know this piece of music. And interestingly, it was written before the merger of 20th Century Pictures and Fox studios. Uh, there were sort of separate entities. And it was written in 1933. And the great Alfred Newman, huge figure in the film music world. Uh, and of course, you know, through his his family name, his sons, David Newman, great composer, great conductor, Thomas Newman, his brother Lionel and his son, Randy Newman, huge, huge, huge family, um, really in, in, into the film music world. And this was written in 1933. And I've got a recording of the the first version here. And it's interesting because it's, have a listen to the end of it. It has a sort of unusual little flourish of a piccolo, which you don't really ever hear these days. It's like a little... Yeah. And... Even just the woodwinds doing those like little trills or something throughout, you don't really hear that in any other version, I don't think. Uh, no. Um, Very marching band Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to think, look, what's what's this trying to, to, to riff off? And it, you know, does it sound English? Does it sound American? And it, to me, it's sort of like a bit of a, a hybrid. That real strong kind of snare is totally that marching band vibe. And, and this is what I was talking about earlier about what is the history of, of, of the fanfare? And it really just, I mean, there's nothing says wake up then. Ba, ba, da, ba. <laughs> and as we'll soon discover, that, that kind of rhythm itself, just dun, da, 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 it's almost like shaking, shaking someone. Um, <laughs> it really becomes a bit of a figure. And a lot of the other studios started to kind of copy that idea. But look, two years later, when the studios merged and it became 20th Century Fox Pictures, we get very similar fanfare, which was the first kind of yeah, official 20th Century Fox Pictures fanfare. 
And interesting, that last chord is like a, what they call like a major sixth chord. So instead of like, it's sort of, oh yeah. You know, it's like a sort of, <laughs> it's almost a bit kind of, um, yeah, it has sort of like easy jazz vibes about it. <laughs> it's just like a little sweetener. Uh, and you don't hear that in, in the modern day version of it. Mm. Mm. That's cool. I'd never noticed that before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, Interesting. And I mean, and Fox, I mean, there's, you know, not to uh, once again spoil things too much, but there's a, a little bit that gets added to that later that I'm sure we all know, but uh, we'll, we'll come to that in good time. But um, <laughs> uh, at this point in time, Fox is really doing musicals. They were one of the big musical studios. Um, and then after the uh, court case, the antitrust court case, they did westerns and crime films and stuff like that. Um, they were, of course, bought by Murdoch uh, in 1985 and the Fox name sort of, you know, became became something else. And then Disney has, has recently repurchased them. And I, I kind of wonder... I mean, how much do you buy a studio like that just so you get the cool fanfare? <laughs> I mean, for me, that would be a big part of the draw. Like, imagine being able to chuck that before all of your films. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like the Rolls Royce gold badging. It's just inst- like this would be a good film. Who cares? Yeah, because you know, it's just because it's got the fanfare. <laughs> it, I mean, it's it's so effective. I mean, Andrew was talking before about the live concerts. Honestly, I think I've seen people shed tears when they've gone to Star Wars concerts and they haven't expected that. And then suddenly they hear the snare drums and it's just like instantly they're they're six years old, you know, like seeing the film for the first time. There's something, something about that that is truly, truly remarkable. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, almost every time the audience bursts into spontaneous applause Mm. um, when that happens. And I don't think, oh, maybe it would, but I just have a feeling that if you just started the film and you cut the logo, you just started. Mm. uh, I don't know if you'd get that same eruption. Um, Mm. Star Wars is a little different, but there are so many of the films that start with something, you know, one of the studio logos. And I don't know, as you say, I think it just hits that nostalgia button, doesn't it? It it feels like a movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I think as well that probably there's a good percentage of film viewers out there who hear these things and they would be able to hum you so many logos, but even then not necessarily know or care what studio is actually associated with it. Like, you know, I mean, there were so many while putting together this episode that I was like, oh, yeah, that one. Like, I, I know that one so well, but I've never even thought to notice which... <laughs> <laughs> which title card it goes with, which studio card it goes with. I, I mean, I, I think I kind of suspect that this this one and 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 maybe a few others. Uh, it's just the sound of the movies. One of the other big studios, Warner Brothers. Yes, Warner Brothers, um, another big film music icon in Max Steiner, who wrote the fanfare for this particular studio. And Dan, we were discussing this earlier. It's this one is interesting because unlike the Fox fanfare. It doesn't really have an authoritative ending. Mm. It starts very similar and has a very similar rhythm. Bum, ba, ba. But it it's one of these pieces of music that is actually designed to seamlessly segue and flow into the main title music of the picture. 
And it probably helps that Steiner probably did most of Warner Brothers films at the time. And so it's sort of just like, well, if I'm writing this fanfare, I'm just going to effortlessly blur it into the next one. So every film, you actually get a brand new recording of, of the fanfare because it's sort of part of an integral to the score. And they're even in different keys sometimes, which is interesting. I guess to match the score. Is that the, the idea? Yeah, quite possibly. So here's one of the original ones from 1937. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. I really, really like this fanfare. Um, I mean, I like Max Steiner's music a lot. Uh, in a way, it's kind of the great thing about this episode as well is that we get to talk about a lot of composers that we, I don't know, will we ever do? Maybe Max Steiner's King Kong or Gone with the Wind or something like that. They're, they're great, great scores, but perhaps a little outside of the, the stuff that we tend to go for. But, I mean, he's often thought of as the father of... Hollywood film music anyway, um, perhaps more so than any other composer. Um, and this has got him written all over it. I mean, I said before that the fanfares are an opportunity for the music to be totally naive. I think Max Steiner's music, you know, he very rarely is ironic or cynical in his music. It's all just straight down the line. Um, and you can totally hear that with the fanfare. Yeah. And a few years later, 1944, at the top of The Adventures of Mark Twain, um, we get the fanfare in a different key and segueing into you know, a, a different style of music. And you can hear that that piece of music would then continue and, and, and go on into the main love theme of the film or whatever it is. Uh, you know, you know, Nick, uh, this is one of the most me anecdotes that, that you'll hear is that I actually had that CD when that was re-recorded, that, um, The Adventures of Mark Twain, and I had an old alarm clock, CD alarm clock, and that was one of the CDs that would be in there that would wake me up. So the exact sound that you've just played, that's the sound of like, 21-year-old Dan waking up at like 7 a.m. Jeez, Daniel. Yeah. This is, um, <laughs> look, I love you, man. Right in. Yeah. <laughs> right into Art of the Score. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Tell dear. us what you think about that. If you want idea. more anecdotes of 20-year-old Daniel. Uh, and I his know. sleeping habits. And his yeah. um, very empty bed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah hey man it's- chicks dig max Steiner, <laughs> and guys yeah guys too. yeah yeah so look from the big three or the big five rather dan you mentioned the little three what's that all about well just before i do one little anecdote with the warner brothers one is that i mentioned there's not a lot of research on this but there is research on this one particular fanfare um by brent jorgensen and jeff lyon and they found that when max steiner used this fanfare between 1938 and 55 they identified 53 different resolutions to that fanfare. So he's basically sitting down and writing a new ending every single time pretty much. Wow. It's, uh, there's, no, there's no other equivalent to that, I don't think, in any of the, the ones that we're talking about. Um, and it's, you know, the other thing that I think that shows us is that it, the music is acting as a real transition point between like 
okay, quiet everybody. And now we're in the drama. We're in the 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 world of the film. Um, yeah. yeah. And the fact that it kind of modulates, look, probably does a disservice to its longevity because mm. it sort of starts and then kind of builds and changes and twists and then blends into another thing. We don't really identify it as much as say like the 20th century Fox fanfare, which is essentially just in the same key of B flat the entire time. Mm. You know, it's just... And yeah. then that's it. This one, yeah, because it does that, it means, yes, it's more malleable and versatile, but it's probably less memorable because it just sort of fades and doesn't really have a distinct ending. Yeah. So poor old Max. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, it also means that they're intrinsically built into the score as well. I actually yeah. um, did, a, did a radio show a couple of weeks ago on Max Steiner and his music and every single track I played <laughs> began with this to the point where it was sort of like, I think maybe I even had a listener text in sort of being like, why does every single piece of music that Max Steiner wrote open with the same, <laughs> same <laughs> bit of music? And it's because it's the, the fanfare. and, and Warner Brothers fanfare. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Anyway, so from the big five studios, that's once again RKO, Fox, Paramount, Warner and MGM, there were the little three. Now, the little three were functionally often quite similar to the big five, but the difference was that they tended to own less. A few of them owned theatres that you could go and see their films in, but they tended to work with the bigger studios to, to get their movies out. Perhaps we can start with Universal, uh, I guess. Yeah. Maybe they had a smaller budget because they basically stole Tchaikovsky, <laughs> <laughs> is what they did. And specifically, I'm talking here like the universal horror films. You know, mm. we're talking Dracula, um, give me some other names. Uh, it was uh, Frankenstein, the Frankenstein, mummy. thank you. Mm. All those sort of films actually used an excerpt of Swan Lake at the top of their films. <laughs> Now, I will say that these are from 1931 and 32, um, you know, like The Mummy, those kind of things. And so maybe maybe this is before Universal kind of got the memo that studio logo themes are in now. Mm. So we actually find later on that after Warner Brothers and Fox had these great big fanfares, we do get a, a little Universal one written by Jimmy McHugh. And it's much more of a sort of jaunty, almost like a sort of Captain America going off to sort of fight for your country kind of vibe is how I kind of hear it. Get ready to be scared. <laughs> but I mean, really, what do you guys hear when you when you hear that? I, I, Superman. Yeah. <laughs> well, mark the time, Dan. How many minutes did that take before we jammed Johnny in there? <laughs> oh, there'll be more. There'll be more. <laughs> Look, I'd never heard this universal sort of logo fanfare from 1936 before doing all this research. And mm. 
it really is, you know. Um, obviously, Williams was throwing back to an era. Um, I mean, let me ask you, when was DC's Superman written? When was the first comic out? Oh, the first, was it in the 30s? The first action action yeah. comics where Superman appears, I think is 36. Okay, what's well, the same year as this? Yeah. So maybe oh, right. maybe there's a specific reason that John Williams went and chose mm-hmm. this exact piece to kind of, you know, have well, a bit of a, a riff on. Well, the other the other factor here is um, firstly the, the serials, um, so the film serials, the B serials that would accompany feature films. So they would be like the 10-minute, before the feature attraction or 15, 20 minutes sort of thing and, and it was sort of be week to week. This is when film going was unimaginably popular compared to today. Like it was something like 40% of um, – actually, I've got the stats here, sorry. So in 1930, about 65% of the US population went to the cinema every week. <laughs> Wow. So <laughs> even in 2000. Nothing else to do. Yeah. <laughs> in like the, the year like 2005 or something, it was like 10%. So, it, yeah, as I said, it's unimaginably different. So you could have a weekly story. There was no TV. Um, and so the, the those sort of film serials, and they're the first superhero adaptations. You get early Batmans and Supermans in the 40s, some Greenlands and stuff like that. And they sound a lot like that. So that's what John Williams is kind of referencing. But the other thing that I had not thought of at all while doing the research and prep for this episode, and you've made me think of it now, is radio serials. So in the same way that a film studio would have its own orchestra and its own in-house composers and music supervisors, so would um, a radio company. Like CBS, you know, um, Bernard Herrmann worked with Orson Welles, created all the soundtracks. And so you get those sort of fanfares for the early adaptations of superhero stories being on the radio. Batman and Superman, that's where the, you know, leaps a tall building in a single bound, like that sort of stuff. (laughs) And so that's also where John Williams will be harking back to, which is exactly at this point in time where the the film studio fanfares are being written to. So, yeah, spot on. on. And I had never heard of Jimmy McHugh before realising he wrote this piece. And I did a bit of research and he actually wrote one of my favourite jazz standards, Andrew. Did you know that? Oh, let's hear it. What is it? It's this one. Grab your coat and snatch your hat Leave your worries on the doorstep Just direct your feet To the sunny side of the street <laughs> Sunny side of the street? I assume that was Frank singing. It was, yeah. But yeah, yeah. written by Jimmy McHugh and Dorothy Fields six years before the Universal Fanfare. Wow. So, um Just warming up. Hmm? Just warming up. <laughs> A few less chords in the, uh, the fanfare. Yeah. <laughs> On the sunny side of the street. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. but yeah look, that, that, I, I really like that fanfare, but it didn't really get its due because often with those early universals, it's actually just the sound of the aeroplane flying around the globe. Yes, um, that's right. That's, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's the other thing, you know, like obviously there's the podcast and, and these, these are visual things, but there's such beautiful like early animation sort of early I, I guess I can only imagine it's kind of like some kind of stop motion animation or something for a lot of these yeah. as well um, that just yeah they're, so, they're, they're really cool little titles um, but yeah yeah, Universal obviously you know from the beginning has been a globe even though it's Universe have you ever thought about that um, <laughs> it's, shouldn't it be a solar system rather than a planet anyway 
Um, <laughs> right into Art of Never the Score. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, yes. Yeah, Look, so astronomy was in its infancy back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, maybe it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so just, just the, the plane flying far too high above the atmosphere uh, around the globe. Yeah, what, so. what was he thinking? <laughs> and is it, is, it, is it a biplane or is it a... It's... Uh, I don't know. I can't I remember know. now. Yeah. Right into yeah. Art of the Score. Mm. Yeah. Where's, the ox- uh, where's the oxygen? I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is ridiculous. This is a sham. <laughs> this whole episode is a sham, Dad. No oh, wonder no one remembers the fanfare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on top of that, I will just quickly say, I think the one uh, little three that we don't have music for is something called United Artists. I don't think they had a fanfare at any point. Um, they're just super interesting to note. They're one of the three. Um, they were founded by Mary Pickford, the actor. Her husband, Douglas Fairbanks, also an actor. Charlie Chaplin uh, and D.W. Griffith, the director. Um, so they all sort of got together and decided that they weren't getting a good enough deal at um, the, the major studios. And in 1919, founded United Artists. By the 1930s, really only Charlie Chaplin was still producing films under the United Artists um, banner. Um, but they had a string of successes after the court case. So after that big court case happened, the, the Antitrust Act, uh, it opened the playing field a bit and it was kind of, you know, prime and ready for a, for a sort of more artist-led company to, to lead. And they had, you know, High Noon, a film called Marty, which is a wonderful rom-com, but the 007 films, they distributed um, the early ones. And anyway, that was sold to MGM in 1981. And that is the end of them for this story. Although actually we might hear a little bit from them later. But the... The other little three, we've heard two of the three, is Columbia. Now, they produced and sold B-movies to the big five. So they basically operated more or less like a, like a big studio, but they made films cheaply and, and sold them to the, to the big ones to distribute. But they also made a film, which I think actually is the first one where this uh, little fanfare comes from, called It Happened One Night, which was really their big, big success. It was, it's really, I think It Happened One Night is one of the first rom-coms actually speaking of, of that. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. But um, they had a, a little fanfare at the start. We we could do a whole episode surely on the history of but but da da da. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like the love child of the 20th century Fox and the Warner Brothers Max Steiner one. In that, yeah, it has that real obvious but but da da. But it also has the the sort of the melting into the the un, the overture music, mm. um, and away it goes in that regard. It's a nice little 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 piece. Yeah, I like it. I like it. And yeah. I, I don't think we said the composer. The composer is Misha Bakalinikov. Um, Bakalinikov, yeah, <laughs> Misha, who who wrote I, I've learned um, is probably not super famous today, but wrote some really great scores. I've been listening to some of his music recently. Now, beyond the Big Five and the Little Three uh, as well, there were some other categories of studios, I guess. Um, so there was one uh, that, in all of Hollywood's usual tact. Anybody that sat outside the big five and the little three operated on something that was called, I kid you not, 
Poverty Row. <laughs> wow. <laughs> which were the, the, the independents and the really cheap sort of studios. This is things like Republic Pictures, Monogram Pictures. Some of these had fanfares but not really consistently at the point in time we're talking about so we won't dive too deeply but there was also a group of studios that were non-majors so independents uh animation houses like walt disney which we won't hear much about right now but we will hear later also international studios like the rank corporation do do, do you guys oh the rank corporation one of my (laughs) favorites it's a British Are they company. the one that have the logo with the naked man hitting the gong? Is That's that the exactly one? <laughs> right. I wow, always I feel that, yeah. like like I'm about to see a great movie when I when I see that guy hit the gong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the other independents that's worth sort of talking about while we're just still on fanfares before moving on from this era completely is, well, I mean, so back in the day, an independent would work with a major studio. They'd produce their own films, but then work with a big studio to to get them out in cinemas. And the biggest of all of these was created by the producer David O. Selznick, who was one of the personalities of the golden age of Hollywood. If you've ever seen a, you know, parody of an old world Hollywood producer smoking a cigar and screaming at people and, you know, more powerful than the president, that's Selznick pretty much. Um, In fact... This is, I think, the best way to be introduced to him is um, through North by Northwest because Alfred Hitchcock made movies for Selznick. He made Rebecca in particular for Selznick. And in North by Northwest, Cary Grant's character is called, his middle name is O, and he's asked, what does it stand for? And he says, oh, nothing. <laughs> and, and that apparently is, for those in the know, a pot shot at David O. Selznick as sort of you know, <laughs> self-aggrandizing, you know, inventing these little personal details that actually meant nothing. Anyway, Selznick started Selznick International. <laughs> uh, never wanted to shy away from naming a massive company after himself. Uh, And he had a fantastic fanfare, uh, which is used in in those huge films, you know, Rebecca, Gone with the Wind by Alfred Newman. And in fact, this is an instance of Alfred Newman meets Max Steiner because the fanfare kind of gets blended almost straight into the overture of, of Gone with the Wind, which is this particular example. is actually spliced together isn't it that's that's not yeah the, the same orchestra playing both things no like it's basically almost Steiner like a crossfade yeah. between those two pieces yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. it's a weird fanfic it almost sounds like you know someone's about to be shot out of a cannon at the start mm. and then they land after someone's got married at a church yeah <laughs> and then <laughs> a little brass band yeah appears. it is very churchy isn't it with those those bells and those huge like um leaps they kind of feel like yeah what, what are they like fifths or fourths or something um yeah, is that sort of? It's almost that like classic church bell thing. Yeah, it's sort mm. of descending fourths. Mm. Yeah, very um, um, sonorous or something like that. Very sonorous. Yeah, and then with some wide leaps, sort of towards the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, Dan, I know that you and Nick had done a lot of research on this episode, and I've been doing my own research as the uh, the art of the okay. score historian. 
I don't know if you knew that was one of my roles. Um, I thought I'd look back to the history of the Art of the Score fanfare, Goodness which of course me. plays at the, at the start of our podcast. But did you know, Daniel, mm. that the Art of the Score can trace its history all the way back to the 1930s? <laughs> I did not know that, no. <laughs> and indeed, just like today, we, we the, the, the Art of the Score uh, Corporation... Mm. Um, have been on Poverty Row for, well, ever since day one. So, uh, <laughs> still there. <laughs> anyway, um, this particular one, this is, this is one of the earliest recordings I could find of uh, the Out of the Score fanfare. It was by uh, one of Nick's ancestors, Thaddeus Buck. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very old um, LP that I found, uh, but, but here it is. I can say is I'm glad you didn't <laughs> inherit your family's tuning skills, Nick. <laughs> because your, your Look, it's an old LP, LP player that I yeah. that I had to hook up. <laughs> okay. Look, I've got an old photo of Thaddeus, and um, <laughs> I, I never met the man, but basically, you know, there were a lot of empty bottles behind him. <laughs> is all is all I remember. Mm, my, my father mm. showing me that that picture. Anyway, so um, I'm I've got a lot of that throughout our history, Dan. Um, like I said, I thought we'd we'd get the art of the score history going, and awesome. that's the beginning. So I mean, let's let's stop saying the uh, small three and start talking about the small four. Yeah. Um, at this point, the little yeah. four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'll I'll trouble you to take us into um, the fifties in a moment, but I mean, I guess just to end the story, we've we've heard about you know where the studios came from and kind of this moment of them musically establishing themselves as the power and maybe to some degree almost the, the brands and the authors of Hollywood, I think is what's happening at this point in time. But yeah, 1948 comes along. There's the big antitrust case and frankly, they lose a lot of their power. So they had to, they had to sell all their exhibition houses and sort of break up their, their business. And so what happens as well in the 1950s is, well, TV comes along. And this changes everything. It upends everything again because now suddenly these film studios that are cash-strapped go, oh, great, we've got this back catalogue that we thought we'd never do anything with. Let's sell 20 years' worth of movies to this TV broadcaster that's just started up. And they, they can, you know, whatever, they can do whatever with them, not really realising that, of course, that meant that a whole bunch of people would probably just stay at home and watch the movie that's on TV rather than, you know, get the whole family together, go out, buy tickets. And so this is kind of like an existential threat. And so going back to the, the film studio logic, how do you get people back into the theatres is by showing them something that they can't see at home. What can't they see at home? Huge spectacle <laughs> <laughs> and huge images and really 
This is why you get the shift between the 30s and 40s where you have the academy ratio, which is that kind of square old TV, um, you know, sort of landscape view. And then suddenly in the 1950s you have these huge um, widescreens. It's because then suddenly all these movie studios invented their own unique widescreen processes, branded them, gave them specialised names and sometimes gave them specialised fanfares as well. So Paramount was the first one to do this with a widescreen process called VistaVision in 1952. Now, Nick, there was a fanfare that went with VistaVision. Yep, and it sounds a bit like this. I love that's it's almost like a kind of stock energetic fanfare, and then it has this, yeah, you know, this kind of slide up and slide down. And it's if you will go on YouTube and watch these kind of logos, it has this massive VistaVision logo that kind of flies in from the back of the screen, almost like those Superman titles, yeah, and comes right at the front. And it's really it's something to behold. It's it's I can imagine in '52 people would be like, "Whoa." That's awesome. <laughs> and so this is like the brand of a brand. This is a yeah. This is the it's like the sub brand. Yeah, the like, sub brand yeah. of you know. Hey, you've had Coke. Now try <laughs> yeah. you know, Coke Zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vista Vision with Paramount. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, you can also hear the difference in the writing as well. I mean, it really goes places, as you said. It begins stock, and then uh, I don't even know if I can quite musically follow with my ears where what happens in that middle bit. Well, I'll play it again. I mean, it's really, yeah, it is a stock fanfare. After that big slide, it has a couple of brass chords with, you know, soaring horn lines. And that's really something that becomes a feature, I think, going forward, especially into the 80s and 90s. Here's the slide. Interesting. And that's written by a composer called Nathan Van Cleef. Yeah. I sort of I don't almost, know much about him. Yeah, no, I, I don't either, yeah. But that last little phrase, the dun, 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 the way that it kind of... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, How does it's it, odd, isn't it? <laughs> that's not the home chord that it's ending on. No, and I think that's one of those things where, like the Steiner Warner Brothers one, that sort of that was probably like a. I think that's at the front of a Hitchcock film, so that mm. kind of dramatic low E flat right. is sort of segueing into. Yeah, we're about to go you know, into a murder mystery or something a bit dark there. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, and of course at, at this point, widescreens weren't the only thing that that was being used by film producers to get audiences back. Three D was also a thing at this point in time. Although I don't think, as far as I know, there were no 3D sort of fanfares. Um, but uh, yeah, one of the Alfred Hitchcock films at the time, Dial M for Murder, was shot for 3D and actually never released in 3D until the 80s. Um, this is, you know, the old like blue and blue and red, blue and red glasses. Oh. Yeah, oh, is that when that came in? Okay. Yeah, uh, and yeah. but there were plenty of gimmicks. My favorite one is, um, I think it was House on Haunted Hill by William Castle, where at one point um, he would get a, a, a skeleton to be swung out over the audience. <laughs> <laughs> or actually, now I remember another William Castle. He was the king of the gimmicks called the Tingler. <laughs> which <laughs> was a Sounds horror. Oh, it gets better. 
uh, it was a horror movie. And at some point, the monster, the tingler, would escape into the movie theater and the film would kind of stop and the, the actors on screen would direct their address to the audience and say, now to get the tingler out of the audience, you have to scream. And people would scream because attached to certain people's chairs was a very small electric pulse that would give <laughs> certain members of the audience a, oh a little God. bit of an electric shock. So. It's like a theme park. <laughs> yeah. Like one yeah. of those 4D theme parks that sprays water and wind up oh, your yeah. How spot on. Yeah, that's, that's the origins of that. Absolutely, Nick, yeah. Wow. Anyway, that was a bit of a digression. <laughs> but so aside from VistaVision as one of the more mild in comparison widescreen uh, processes, 20th Century Fox has got their own widescreen process. Theirs is called CinemaScope. And what they do is they add a beautiful, beautiful something to Newman's existing fanfare. really changes it doesn't it mm-hmm. it's sort of it's almost like the fanfare and the romantic kind of bit yep. that kind of gets you all the emotional feels and then you're back to the heraldry yeah and i think that's sort of what was missing from the 1930s it was pure heraldry there was yep. no emotional kind of pull yeah you know and that's the real difference you know it's those sort of those really three chords, major, minor, sixth, and then a resolution to a major. It just gets you those feels, which is very Star Wars, you know. It's that, that chord progression that we've talked so much through on our podcast. It's here. It's in the 20th Century Fox fanfare. Mm. Um, the sound of old Hollywood. The sound of old Hollywood. Mm. Yeah. And it's the strings. I mean, strings are the, they're the emotional pull. That's what... Mm composers go to when they're choosing to, to really tug at the heartstrings they're not giving you a brass fanfare mm. um, and you're going oh yeah god I feel so loved you know they're, they're saving them for the action scenes and whatnot. and this was Alfred Newman again wasn't it adding this extension yeah mm. yep. and, and that, that's so true Nick actually on reflection that this is really one of the first ones that, that brings in a sense of the, the romance of the movies I think um, as opposed to just like here we are the movie's starting ta-da uh, as much as I love the other ones, this one's a bit more like we're thinking about your heart as well as your excitement yeah. here. And even for like when you associate this a few decades later for all the Star Wars films when it was brought back, having you know the Fox logo and then going into, is it the Lucasfilm logo? Yep. yep. You know, it's almost like here's a studio that brought you this thing that you love. Yep. And that, that, I think that was the most powerful thing about having this at the front of a Star Wars film is that people see it on the words Lucasfilm and just get that real warm, oh, this, this is why I'm here, this is what I love. And I, th- I think that's, you know, what a lot of people don't realise is is the, the reason why John Williams was, uh, or, or George Lucas, I'm actually not sure who made that decision, was able to bring back the full 20th Century Fox fanfare with the Cinemascope extension is because there's two logos. So, you know, with the original Fox fanfare, 
that just ends with a that's because that's just that's the fox searchlights you know moving around there's no room for george in the original yeah 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 whereas yeah exactly the that accompanies the vista vision logo in the this um uh, sorry, not the Vista Vision, the Cinemascope logo in this setup in the 50s. And so then when Lucas revisits that in the 70s, he swaps out Cinemascope for Lucasfilm, which is why oh, okay. it's kind of weird, I think, these days to watch the, you know, the Disney era ones, although, you know, it has, I think, the Fox fanfare has been brought back. But to see the Lucasfilm logo in silence because it's one thing to take out 20th Century Fox, but to see Lucasfilm without the banana, banana, that's that's actually new in the Disney era, really, for the Star Wars films. So that's yeah. that little bit that's missing. And then, of course, to have the silence for a long time ago because with the recent Disney films in release, it's just silence. You don't have that fanfare ringing in your ears. Um, it feels weird to see Star Wars just start with the Star Wars main title. I know yeah. that sounds weird to say, but so ingrained is it in our experience of a Star Wars film. Yeah. Um, that's that's the power of it. And if it seems strange that we're leaping ahead to talk about a 1970s film with this 1950s one, I mean, I think this totally makes sense Is from this point out, when we play a lot of these studio fanfares, we are, I think and everybody listening to this is immediately going to think of that particular film that then starts after hearing that, you know, the one that they wore out the tape of when they were 10, um, that, that, you know, they saw so many times as a kid and that they immediately associate that fanfare ending with X soundtrack beginning. So, uh, but, you know, obviously with this one, I think for, for a lot of people it will be Star Wars. Yeah. And let's not forget that, you know, for maybe 20 years, maybe from the mid-50s to about 77, yeah, this Fox fanfare kind of disappeared from screens. And then ever since Star Wars, it hasn't gone away. Like, you still see films today with it. Mm. Um, interesting. Mm. But look, later in the 50s, we actually get the re-emergence of another fanfare which we've heard earlier in the podcast, Dan. Mm. And it's this guy who lasted, just like the Fox fanfare, Kind of till till today. It's been around since 1957, and it's this. And that is the sound of Leo the Lion, who reorchestrated his former predecessor's Jackie's fairly tepid mm. yawn <laughs> from uh, 1928. It's a pretty and, ferocious um, <laughs> mm. So Leo, I think, was the seventh or eighth lion, mm. MGM lion. There were apparently a whole heap of them throughout the 30s and 40s. They just kept re-recording and updating. Mm. But Leo's that we hear there um, has stayed since. But anyway, let's, let's move on from that because I also was continuing my research during this period uh, Nick, and I came across another one of your ancestors, would you believe? Um, oh. It was uh, Jerry Buck. Jerry, Jerry Buck. Jerry, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry Buck. Good, uh, That's yeah. what his good name Grandpa was. Grandpa Jerry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, he had good, updated... Good, um, good saxophonist he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. No, really <laughs> smooth. Um, and, of course, he was tasked with the idea of, you know, the studio's moving on, uh, the other score brand... It needed a bit of an update, needed to come in with the times. And, uh, of course, this is the, the version of the Art of the Score theme that he came up with. Mm. 
course, that theme being popularized throughout uh, department stores, uh, <laughs> department stores and elevators all around Australia and uh, the US um, for for that sort of whole decade. So um, yeah, Jerry Buck. Yeah, many a many a woman in the sixties bought pantyhose listening to that. <laughs> theme. <laughs> well, sorry, hosiery. I should say hosiery. Mm, mm. Yeah, that anyway, is, uh, always got my love of bossa nova from from Grandpa Jerry. Yeah, God, God, God rest his soul. Uh, was he your grandpa? You've had a couple of grandpas. I guess you can have two grandpas, can't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Thaddeus was great grandpa. Oh, great. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. Sure. on my mother's side. Yeah, not, I get it. Not, mm, not, get it. not directly related to. <laughs> Well, well, uh, well, that would make him not a buck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Look, it's best if you don't think about this too hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. It stays when I, mean, together when I say mother, I really mean father. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that uh, that very smooth segue, uh, we can uh, <laughs> spend spend just a little bit more time in the fifties and, and the sixties as well, but not in film land but in tv land just very briefly because there actually weren't a lot of fanfares made for tv at this point um it would be more like uh the announcer voice coming on at the end of a show or uh, you know at the beginning like you're watching an nbc production like that kind of thing um rather than you know a huge fanfare as we sometimes still get fanfares today on TV, but they tend to be a lot shorter as well. There's not a lot of time to play with. But there's just a couple from this early era of TV that I thought it would be fun to visit, especially because the kind of spectre and threat of TV is what is pushing the the film companies to produce those extraordinarily over-the-top huge fanfares that we've heard elsewhere to hear the kind of minimalism of, of what's going on in TV. I, and, I mean, the first one I think we have to begin with is 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 NBC, um, which was apparently used as early as 1943, but really kind of popularised wow. from the, the 50s on. Um, and, well, you've probably heard it. it. sounds something like this. NBC Television. <laughs> Oh, gripping! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just just three notes. Uh, I'm sure there are other American ones at that time, but in Australia, anyway, that's one of the few long-lasting TV network chimes that I know um, and that I'm familiar with outside of this. And you know what it reminds me of? Um, you know, NBC, big corporation. Um, another big corporation is Facebook, mm. and the score to the social network. It almost sounds like a, a sort of updated inverse version of it. I'll just play the NBC one again. NBC television. That really sort of soft, almost like bell-like mm. piano, little little thing. Well, do I mean? Do we think it's a piano? Do you? I mean, I kind of imagined that with that. It, it, no, it's like a Rhodes or or just some kind of electronic yeah. keyboard potentially. Yeah, mm. I mean, I think it probably. I haven't looked too much into this, so I could be wildly wrong, but I imagine it has its roots in those similar like radio um, chimes for radio networks because I know that there were a few that. That would actually have like a, a um, like a little xylophone next to a microphone, and they just hit it, 
hit the notes, you know. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, extremely minimalist, but I still recognize that from hearing, um, I think, like 30 Rock and stuff like that over here in Australia. Oh, so. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the other one is a little bit bigger. This is from 1966 by a composer called Wilbur Hatch. I've heard this a few times before. Um, well, actually, why don't we just play it and we'll see if anyone recognizes yeah. it. And in fact, I'll play it a few times. I'll play three different versions. Wow. Bumper to bumper. Wow. <laughs> Got it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. it's it's very quick. Um, and I don't know. It, it It's not quite so triumphant. Like, it, I mean, it's more like ta-da, but it's not like here's an amazing thing because this would be played at the end. Well, I was going to say, this sounds like it's like trying to get the maximum buck at the end of a TV show. And maybe mm. this was like really set the bar for so many of those studio logos that you'd see at the end of sitcoms, 70s, 80s, yep. that we, you know, many of us our age, um, you know, would basically come to grow in love mm. and identify with particular shows. Mm. Um, and it's just really quick and it's not as final. It's sort of saying there's more TV to watch and there's more episodes to watch. Yeah. Come, come back next week, same bat channel, same yeah. bat time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we haven't said what it is. It is the Desilu logo sound. Um, so Desilu being the production company that was started by Lucille Ball uh, and uh, her husband, Desi Arnaz. Um, they co-starred in I Love Lucy, um, but were also tremendously successful as TV producers in the, the very early years of TV. Um, apparently, uh, you know, I mean, there were all sorts of innovations from I Love Lucy, including, you know, it's sort of widely credited with starting the multi-camera setup. But, you know, one of the other things is apparently Desi Arnaz um, was sort of, you know, wholly inexperienced with negotiating TV contracts and sort of negotiated one of the shrewdest TV contracts in history, which is that after, I think I think the idea was that after the shows aired, they were 100% the company's property again, which meant back in the day before anybody had realised how incredibly profitable repeats were, <laughs> uh, that was some pretty good money. So, um, uh, so yeah, they, you know, they, they started, and I think actually they even moved into some of the old um, uh, film production um, studios in Hollywood. They got that big. But aside from... Uh, I love Lucy and their, 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 the shows that they start in. They also produced a, a bunch of other things like um, uh, I think it was like Rawhide, um, but Mission Impossible uh, and Star Trek. Mm. So to me, that sound uh, is when I'm watching the original, I think it's first season, maybe first season and a half of Star Trek with uh, sure. Shatner and Kirk and Spock. <laughs> um, that's what you get if you sit through all the credits uh, <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, for me these days on Netflix is about to play the next episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, now, would it interest you that, of course, Art of the Score is on the move at this point and it's probably because of all of those royalties coming in from the uh, the elevators in um, Macy's and uh, local department stores here in Australia <laughs> um, that they had the, the money um, to pull in a new studio band, and it was actually uh, a Teddy Buck, uh, Nick, your um, <laughs> I want to say uncle, who. Yeah, look, he used to, he used to do gigs with Jerry. Yeah, mm. and um, yeah, I mean Teddy was his like you know his stage name. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What was his real name yeah. again? 
Edward. Um, Thespolonu. Thus, okay. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Thespolonu Buck. Yeah. yeah. No, but Teddy's it's kind of like a weird mix of Thaddeus and Bartholomew. So <laughs> Teddy, Teddy was just, you know, what, what what we all called him and all his friends too. Yeah. So this, um, weirdly, just because, you know, we, we've been enjoying um, chronological order throughout this this episode. So so it is appropriate here that this, this theme first appeared on New Year's Day of 1970, um, Dan. So that's why it goes at the start. And here it is. <laughs> Gee, that's a good one, isn't it? That's a good one. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had great pants. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. the best pants. Yeah. Shades of the uh, is it Miko remix of uh, Star Wars the disco remix seventy yeah. seven great tune great tune <laughs> anyway that brings us to the seventies Daniel yeah yeah so seventies were an interesting era for Hollywood studios because basically things were starting to suck <laughs> they they were probably in more trouble in the seventies than they'd been. Well, sorry, in, in towards the end of the 60s than they'd been previously. Um, so, you know, like Cleopatra is always, I think, one of the best examples of this. Cleopatra, the, um, you know, huge golden age costume drama, more costume changes in that than I think in history in any other film, Elizabeth Taylor, was the biggest film at the box office the year it was released. I forget what year that was. And still almost bankrupted the studio. So... They had no idea what they were doing in terms of business. They were just sinking so much money into these films following that widescreen logic of what can't people get at home? Spectacle. Okay, let's inflate the budgets of these movies to astronomical levels. And what happened was the studios went bankrupt. A lot of them really, really, you know, uh, lost a lot of money. And it meant that they were bought by other companies. So my favorite example of this is Warner Brothers. I think it was in like 60-something, the late 60s. They were bought by a company that previously uh, had specialized in two things. One of them was cleaning products and the other (laughs) was car parks. So I don't know what's worse. Yeah. So they weren't exactly, um, you know... The movie industry, like, I mean, for all that Hollywood was a massive global powerhouse at this point, in some instances, it was still a family business. The Warner brothers were actual brothers with surnames Warner up until this point. Like Jack Warner was still hanging around the studio, sort of, you know, giving edicts. So it was... I mean, Dan, it's hmm. one is to polish all the trophies yeah. that they've won, all the awards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And two, I mean, all the car parking for the studio executives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've got to put their spot on. automobile somewhere. Spot on, <laughs> spot on. So, you know, the sort of, I guess, the logic of Hollywood history, the, the prevailing wisdom is what, what really happens in the late 60s is you start to get something called New Hollywood where basically these big studio executives now who they have no idea how to make or market movies, they just go, hey, you, kid, you've been hanging around the lot for like a long time. When you make a movie, give it make a, a shot. Make a picture. Yeah. And 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 you start to have a Hollywood like, picture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you start to have the kind of rise of independent producers as well. You you get things 
like Easy Rider, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, these sorts of movies which were incredibly cheap to make compared to what had come before them uh, and did incredibly well at the box office. Um, And they sort of really start to shift what kind of movies are made uh, in Hollywood and it's not the kind that have these really big orchestral scores. So that's kind of also what shifts. And then that continues into the 70s. But we do start to get this, I think, musical re-articulation of what the studios are and what they're all about um, through some of the fanfares here. And one of the big movers, Nick, at this point in time is is Paramount. Yeah, Paramount had heaps of like, I'm not sure if they're all written by different composers, but little variations, especially on like their their TV sort of division as well as their, their pictures. You mentioned Mission Impossible before. Good old Lalo Schifrin who wrote the Mission Impossible theme did some really wacky kind of Paramount. They're almost like stings, I guess you'd call it. And I've even been, I've even heard this one here referenced as like called the Closet Killer Sting. It's almost like it has a little sub name and it really, um, it kind of sounds like it's very atonal, very weird, almost like wacky modern atonal jazz stuff. <laughs> and that little yeah. that little almost like piccolo sting if you actually look at the logo with Paramount kind of slides forward it has like a little flash of light that like whizzes through all the letters and they all kind of bling and light up here's a little shorter version whoa <laughs> so musical sound effects really uh, yeah it's kind of like even just that short version you just played, the first half is like all over the place and then it yeah. sort of gets a slight sense of certainty in the second half when the lower chords come in. But, God, yeah. that's so bizarre, so different to everything we've heard so far. Yeah. But really the big one comes in 1976 where Jerry Goldsmith writes a really fabulous fanfare that – is different because it has a sense of build. It doesn't start with a but up but up but uh it's basically waiting to the end to give its sort of wow moment. And again, this is like, I mean, the opening sounds like, uh, after those little, little electronic chords, I want to say that the opening of The Sound of Music, I see, you know, panning into Maria on the top of that hill, little, 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 the hills are alive, whatever. But we don't, we get the sort of the romantic strings, almost like the middle of the Fox fanfare. And then we end with the, that's the brass sort of identifying bit. Yeah. And I think that's interesting because, you talked about that Desi Lu logo being at the end of TV shows and whatnot. From there, you really get a whole bunch of, of variations on that kind of sting that only to take about two or three seconds in a, in a few notes to get the fanfare idea. And it's because it's at the end that it's a really easy way to transition. And a version that Jerry Goldsmith did, also in 1976, although this might have been 77, but I'm pretty sure... It's before another very famous film, which this particular sting sounds like. Hmm. Every time. (laughs) I mean, it's so close to being Star Wars, but it's not. Yeah. And I I, I genuinely believe this is written before Star Wars. So it's kind of like, is this just a weird coincidence? Mm. (laughs) It's very strange. Every time I hear that on TV, I'm like, 
Star Wars. What? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but you get a couple of other variations, and I think some of these may have been written by other composers. I can't quite work out. Uh, this one's definitely Goldsmith. Also a Paramount TV sting. Mm. You know, it's got that real muscular Goldsmith like kind a of Roman, chords. Roman. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. This one sounds like it's for a Western villain. Oh, um, and this is another one. I don't know who wrote this. Ah. You know, they're just subtle variations on this sort of. Da, 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 da. Huh. It's almost like you could draw it on a graph. How you know how how the shape of the logo needs to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and they're all for Paramount Television. Wow, just little little subtle variations. A couple of different composers. Mm, mm. Fascinating. Yeah, I really like that that thick one. The one that you said sounds like a Roman. Uh, one, this one. Yeah, like what's going on with that bass? It's it's like playing a fifth down or something like that. It yeah, I mean the bass is going, but maybe the chords are sort of in force or something. Um, yeah, or something like that. Something like it, that. There's some weird like <laughs> chords built on fourths in a weird pyramid. Yeah, that sort of give it that yeah that odd. Open harmony in the horn. Very thick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's cool. I like it. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, obviously as well, you know, I mean, we can hear that. I mean, Paramount, as we said at the start, seems to have had this Paramount on parade thing that we can't quite nail down. But it doesn't seem to have really had a hugely strong musical identity. And I think maybe at this point, having gone through some some hard times having been Hollywood's biggest studio now on TV it's kind of figuring out what what is it that's paramount what is it that's our sound what is it that the studio does anymore because of course you know when we're talking 70s what happens at the end of that new Hollywood era that I was talking about is you have two particular young filmmakers who turn up and get given the keys to to filmmaking, as I described before, and they are Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, and they change Hollywood radically again with their contributions and make it much more blockbuster orientated rather than this sort of brief period of uh, more sort of personal films uh, like Bonnie and Clyde. So, yeah, you know, I think really at this point the studios are going, What? yeah, hold on, didn't we used to be, <laughs> you know, it's the pictures that got small, like I, <laughs> um, that, that kind of reawakening I, I don't know yeah it's 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 a really interesting moment for for hollywood um in the 70s yeah yeah definitely um we also get a female composer suzanne chiani who did the columbia music in 1976 and this is first year using a film called murder by death it's not that melodic but it's it's memorable and i, I definitely have heard this on films No need to pay an orchestra. <laughs> well, exactly. You're really getting the entrance of the synthesizer. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. Um, I was very curious about Suzanne Chiani, um, and I looked up, you know, her her output. And she didn't write that many film scores, but she seems to have been incredibly well connected and, and wrote 
many of her own studio albums, um, but often guest on, guested on other people's music. And in fact, I made that crack earlier about Miko's Star Wars remix. She actually played on it. <laughs> yeah. So she, you know, as wow. you can hear in that music, um, was a synthesizer expert seemingly and provided special musical and sound effects created on a Buchler, I think that's how you say it, uh, synthesizer, B-U-C-H-L-A. Oh, where's Sayer when you need it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, exactly. Our <laughs> resident art of the school synth expert. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Nick, do you think that um, Suzanne played on um, that art of the score one? I mean... <laughs> it, it does it does i mean i just wanted to play it again <laughs> i mean it's very possible that these worlds have come together you know because they mm. would have been i do remember you know terry coming home drunk you know from <laughs> from the club you know studio 54 and talking about Susie something or yeah, other yeah, so yeah, it could have yeah. been her yeah, it could have been yeah no, it's all making sense um, yeah, I mean they were pretty drugged up yeah. you know, back in those days. So <laughs> who knows what he was really got yeah. going on? How about. old were you then, um, Nick? Uh, minus <laughs> four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yeah. Mo- moving along here, Daniel. So at this point, we got to talk about one of the studios that really wasn't that big, even at this point. Uh, it was sort of considered, uh, you know, a bit of a bit of a idiosyncratic studio, uh, and that was originally the Disney Brothers Studio. Um, they did animation, did a whole bunch of re- weird, quirky projects, and got there. You know, managed to make the first sound animated cartoon, um, made the first animated feature film with Snow White. Um, I was reading actually just today that that was apparently considered a, a, a huge misjudgment on Walt Disney's behalf and and then he showed them when it became, well, at least for a brief period, the highest grossing film of all time. Uh, but yeah, they, they were really idiosyncratic and they'd never really had the studio logo fanfare that the other studios had really up until this point. This is 1972. And now, a 50th anniversary presentation from Walt Disney Productions. <laughs> oh. and, and, you know, this is when, uh, you know, Disneyland has opened. Disney's had a big presence on TV at this point. They're starting to become a different company. Um, they released, you know, The Jungle Book. Um, these sorts of films um, at this point in time, which had sort of started to give them a different profile. Um, They would have some pretty lean years, which we might mention when we return to them later. But I think we're starting to see, yeah, we're starting to hear the articulation of Disney as a a musical brand. I mean, right there, you've got such a different just aesthetic it's Mm. small it's intimate it's almost sounds like a kid is playing on his little toy casio keyboard almost like a music box kind Mm. of effect i mean can i ask you have disney like have they always marketed their films for kids or has it always just been for anyone look it it sort of depends which era disney we're talking about at this point in time yes a hundred percent they're family orientated production you know they're, they're doing live action stuff but when they do live action stuff it's like the swiss family robinson um okay, yep. <laughs> you know treasure island stuff like that Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea i think is theirs at that point in time as well and 
you know, really it's, 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 it's family stuff. It's nostalgic as well, right from the get go. You know, I mean, when Walt Disney opens Disneyland in what was it? 1952, I want to say the main street USA is still the first thing that you see when you walk in. And that's meant to be an evocation of kind of his childhood town that he grew up in as well. So it's very, very much about nostalgia and childhood and youth um, later, um, they do get into live action production and they do get into distributing their own films. So I was talking about them in the golden age of Hollywood. They're working again with the larger studios to distribute their films. But then actually, I think it might even be in the seventies that they create the Buena Vista um, company, which is their company oh, yeah. that they yeah. own, which is about film distribution basically. Um, and of course today it's, um, you know, they own, basically everything i think in fact technically they own out of the score so you know (laughs) in terms of what they produce um it's a it's a very different tale now but the disney company with disney brand on it with when you wish upon a star playing at the opening uh it's very very much child oriented yeah i mean that's also i mean you know when you wish upon a star from pinocchio it's 1940 i mean there's a nostalgia already on this they're 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 being nostalgic for their own things yeah. Um, so, you know, because 30 plus years have passed at this point and now we can start looking back. I mean, even the, the particular example you had there, Nick, is, you know, 50 years of uh, Walt Disney. So mm. we are already looking back in the 70s to the, the remember when times were simpler and, you know, yeah. et cetera. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's played on a, that sort of toy box sound and childhood and all the rest of it. And it's just nostalgia city. Spot on because, you know, in the 70s, the other thing that happens politically in America is you get Watergate, you have Vietnam, this real, you know, historians talk about this real dis- disaffection and loss of kind of um, optimism. Uh, and so the, the nostalgia that you get from not just Disney, but often people talk about Star Wars as well as being kind of reaction to that as giving people something to remember and long for and kind of um, cheer for again. Um, and actually the perfect example of that um exact thing that you're talking about andrew is so this is 1972 five years later in 1977 you get close encounters which uses when you wish upon a star uh, john williams uses it in the underscore but it's actually mentioned in the film roy the lead character of close encounters you know early in the film is hanging out with his kids who are kind of bratty and you know causing a ruckus and he's like you know, while his wife is doing all the work in the background, he's looking at the paper and he goes, oh, Pinocchio's on at the local theatre. You guys have never seen Pinocchio. Like doing that exact yeah. thing that you're talking about, Andrew, of like he's reliving his childhood and he realises his kids haven't seen this movie that was important to him. So, yeah, yeah, spot on. I think, yeah, When You Wish Upon a Star has got to be up there with like, I don't know, maybe um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow is one of the most nostalgic melodies in all of film history, yeah. And they both start with an interval of an octave. This is Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And if I play the same key, but when you wish upon a star. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Maybe, yeah, maybe the octave is the sound of reaching up to one's dreams and... Over the castle, over the rainbow, over to the other side where happiness awaits. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, I was. Um, <laughs> so, 
I was listening to um, my friend, our friend. I think we one day we should do some sort of crossover. Um, Kirk Hamilton um, does a great music podcast. It's a plug there for for Kirk. Not that he needs it. And I was listening to his episode on David Bowie the other day, and he was just saying making the same link with Starman that it begins with an octave uh, and that it's very wistful and nostalgic because of that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all of them, all of them, yeah, leap up and then slowly deflate each time, don't they? In terms of like mm, the melody yeah. comes down. It is that sort of really wistful idea. Mm. I'd love to find a song that does an octave and then keeps going up. <laughs> <laughs> Just more octaves. You know what? Told that I'm going to write one. Everyone listening, don't ever write a song. Leave it, leave it to me, please. <laughs> yeah. it's an idea. You heard it here first. It's a million dollar I'm idea. Write Nick. a song wow. with an octave that then keeps going up. Wow. Wow. It's wow. the anti nostalgia. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> from there, really, uh, I mean, we—I think these are the, those are the major ones from the seventies. There are a couple that I thought would be fun to play through, just because they're oh so nineteen seventies. Some of these are from TV. We've got PBS from nineteen seventy one. I mean, that's pretty mm, yeah. cool, isn't it? <laughs> I'm glad it landed on a major seven. Otherwise, it would have been very disappointing if it just went. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that's going to be like oh, a boring, you know, take your seats, ladies and yeah, gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, like the, the pool concert. is about but to close. Sort of, yeah. Ooh, this is an interesting TV show. I'm going to watch this. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that was by... Just enough of a variety with that... Yeah, yeah, the little, um, oh, what would Saya say? The envelope being opened and closed? I think that's right. We'll, we'll get her to provide feedback. We have learnt nothing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we have learnt nothing. Put yeah. Sayer on the line. We're yeah. idiots. Um, but that was by Paul Allen Levi uh, using an EMS VCS3 Putney synthesizer, which is, is pretty Saya, cool. Sayer, help us. Yeah. What the hell is he talking about? Uh and then what kind we of acronym had, is that? We, we had this one, which I don't reckon has been heard very widely, but as I said, it's so 70s. This is a film distribution company, but so it would have been heard a little bit, but they didn't really produce films, so it would have been heard sparingly. It's Associated Film Distribution and is from when else but 1978. It was obviously 50% off on that sound effect, wasn't it? Whee! Whee! I'll do it again, it's cheap. Whee! And let's just move up a chord. It's interesting. Yeah. Just quarterly, just the progression goes up a step every time with a, a slightly higher pitch. Whee! Yeah. I mean, maybe we could reenact it if we, um, if you guys want to do the the wails. Yep. No, Dan, can I, you do the rhythm? I can do the did, 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 yeah. did, 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 Andrew, I want you to do the, um, the wails. Yeah, got it. Okay, mm-hmm. here we go. One, two, three, four. Oh, wow. Nailed it. That's uh, also very impressive to have just, I, I think that's the world's first successful uh, musical recording over Zoom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We we are still doing this on Zoom, so yeah, if that yeah. was even vaguely in time, yeah. it is due yeah. to Nicholas Sparks yeah. editing skills. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is the COVID studio logo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
All the different variants are in there with the key changes. Yeah. Nailed it. Yep. Nailed it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that's that's a good point to end the 70s on as well because that's the kind of cheap little sound that you would have heard on a lot of like tapes and grindhouse cinema screenings, cheap cinema screenings that you've never heard again. That kind of, you know, little thing that was probably produced for a couple of hundred bucks by someone who had a mate at the studio or whatever, you know, like and kind of signaled the era of really the financial and industrial changes on, on a different scale where things started to be global. You started to have these international houses as well that all could now have their logos because you don't need to hire a 100-person orchestra anymore. You can you can pay someone with a cheap synth. <laughs> okay, guys. Yeah. I think that brings us to the end of part one of our movie studio theme journey. Um, we hope you enjoyed yourself. And if you did, go ahead and press subscribe and write us a review on iTunes and all those other various podcast platforms. It's certainly going to help us get the word out there. And if you have any questions about these themes or any of the other scores that we talk about, or you just want to request a score for us to analyze in the future, and i got to say, we have quite a long list at this point, but we would still love to hear from you. Hit us up on Twitter at Art of the Score, Instagram, also Art of the Score, along with Facebook. And, of course, uh, Nick... Where's that? Where's that email address? Because we actually get wonderful emails. I really enjoy reading them every time. Uh, yes, it is COVID at artofthescore.com. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. It is contact at artofthescore.com.au. Indeed. And so, until next time for part two, I'm looking forward to it because we're going to start off with the 80s through to the present. And this, the 80s is where uh, young Andrew Pogson comes alive. This is the, <laughs> quite literally, really. Um, but uh, certainly in my heart is the uh, the 80s into the 90s is where, where it's going to get interesting. The, the stories get interesting and the music gets even better. And I think there are just going to be so many in this next little period where you're like, wait, I've heard that before. Who did that again? Uh, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so until next time, I'm Andrew Pogson and that's Dan Golding. Can't wait till next step. And he's Nicholas Buck. And this was Art of the Score. Jerry Buck magic and play a little bit off book. Something like this, okay? Thank <laughs> you.